Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So I would just like to open by making a little announcement in light of the attempted coup of me as podcast host, which listeners will remember from a few weeks ago. I have total authority as podcast host. When someone is the host of the podcast, the authority is total. I would like to challenge that by citing the podcast total. constitution. Total. Lower your voice. Total. I just want to point out that this podcast was not created by Dictat of the host, and therefore it cannot be managed by Dictat of the host. Excuse me, who are you? Where are you from? I'm the governor of the, the bedroom studio here. Don't call him. Let's liberate the podcast. <laughs> Have at it, kids. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the A Little Government is a Dangerous Thing edition. I'm Shane Harris, total podcast host. You guys don't really feel like I'm oppressing you on this podcast, do you? Liberate the podcast. I, I would say it's a benevolent hegemony that you impose. I, I accept really it gleefully. For. I'm still playing oh, for a green card here in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, green cards have been suspended. Natan, we're not so accepting here. immigrants anymore. Listen, lots of good people need their jobs as podcast panelists. We don't need people coming in and taking panelist jobs. Okay? Fair enough. Fair enough. <clears throat> not as long as I'm the host. Except as au pairs. Sure. <laughs> I am here in the remote studios, joined by my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamar Coffin Wittes and our friend Natan Sox from Brookings. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hey. Natan, you've been on the podcast before, I think, once, never in this uh, remote setting. Never in this setting, now. Yeah, and he is the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings. Very fancy. Very, Very fancy job. He, you know, speaking of coups, he seized that position seized. in a coup that overthrew oh. one tomorrow with it. I remember it. I remember it quite differently. The one who thrust it upon me was one tomorrow with us. She's the one who told me it's happening, by the way. I think I shanghaied him. And- in the cafeteria, she sat me down and said, listen, I got some news. <laughs> This is that's a great promotion. This is going to work out really well. This <laughs> will be great. Yeah. You have total authority. <laughs> yeah. All right. Simmer down, you. Uh, on the podcast this week, protests break out against podcasts. I mean, state stay-at-home orders around the country. China is linked to a disinformation campaign about the coronavirus, and Israel forms a unity government. Tammy, I want to start with you on this on this first topic. Uh, obviously, in the past week or so, we've seen protests, some of them quite large, I should say as well, although some really quite small, uh, against stay-at-home orders in several states across the country. We've seen them probably most visibly, notably in Minnesota, Michigan, and Virginia, but there was also a big one in Washington. Uh, we saw one in Pennsylvania, I believe, this week, and I think more are planned. Um, and it does appear that there are a good number of people at these protests with real grievances about economic damage that's being caused by the lockdown. But we also saw right-wing extremists showing up as well with a clearly anti-government character that I think probably is a strain of uh, rhetoric that clearly precedes this current crisis. We saw them carrying signs about government tyranny, comparing their activism to a revolution. Uh, and President Trump encouraged many of those protests on Twitter and praised some of their support also for the Second Amendment, which I don't think really has much to do at all with the question of the lockdown. So my question for you is, you know, do you see right-wing groups taking advantage of this moment of crisis to advance an agenda? And I think we should note, too, this is happening against the backdrop of the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. So give us your thoughts to start on, you know, what you see these groups doing and why the president is encouraging this, at least rhetorically. Thanks, Shane. So 
first off, I feel like I can't be entirely objective in analyzing this because one of these protests, the Michigan protest, was in my hometown in Lansing, which is the state capital. And although, you know, the protests were sizable, I would say the numbers of people were probably in the four figures. So we shouldn't overstate them. These were not million man marches or anything. But the one in Lansing, at least, started out with the idea of being compliant with social distancing. The protesters all showed up in their cars and they caused gridlock in downtown Lansing, gridlock that included blocking the entrance to Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, which is treating COVID patients. And so there was a lot of kind of irony <laughs> in the way the protest played out. And of course, you could see some of that same irony in the protest in Ohio, where people were smushed up in a in a crowd, you know, probably transmitting all kinds of germs to one another, potentially including COVID itself. For President Trump, I think the the motive is fairly obvious. It's to have someone to blame for the economic pain that these lockdowns are causing, someone other than himself. And so why not urge people to direct their frustration and their ire at the state governors who are the ones, after all, who put these stay-at-home orders into place and who have um, had to insist in the face of Trump's blithe statements to the contrary that they are the ones who have the authority to lift those stay-at-home orders and let businesses reopen. And so that in the tug of war between Trump and the governors, there are several layers on the one hand, he wants to look in charge. He wants to look decisive. He wants to look powerful. On the other hand, he doesn't want the responsibility that comes with that authority. He wants to deflect that onto the governors. And then you have the fact that in a number of these states, Michigan, Virginia, um, so on, you have Democratic governors, and uh, he wants to use this in a partisan manner as well. For the people who showed up at the protests, I mean, you know, I think some of these people are anxious, displaced, confused, um, small business owners or people who were employed and are now either stuck at home or have lost their jobs as a result of the stay-at-home orders. And of course, feeling anxious and uncertain and fearful about their futures and wondering how long this is going to go on, they know it's somebody's responsibility that this has happened to them even though it's a virus that caused it to happen. And so it's very easy to take that sense that somebody is responsible for this decision and turn it into what has happened to me is somebody's fault. And I have to get mad at that somebody. And so I think that those people are, you know, sincerely troubled and angry and upset, um, but they are also very ripe for, hearing the messages by Second Amendment groups, by anti-government groups, and so on. And I guess this brings me to my final point. The fact that this happened coincidental with the 25th anniversary of the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building, you know, I was struck right away by the memory that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols planned that bombing in Michigan. They trained with the Michigan Militia, which was an extreme anti-government group that was active in the 1990s. And that sentiment and those organizations have never gone away. You know, Nichols and McVeigh paid the price for what they did, but the ideology that nurtured them and brought them to that point still is around. And so it's part of the broader context of extreme right-wing politics that Trump has kind of opened the Pandora's box over the time that he's been in office. You know, we saw it at the very beginning with Charlottesville, and now we see it again. And the, the demonization of government, of public servants, of anyone in authority, the, the erosion of public trust that comes from this ideology is something that poisons politics, poisons society well beyond the members of those extremist groups themselves. You know, one thing I think a lot of people are asking, and maybe Ben Ornaton, you want to respond to this, but people seem to be making, in just in the immediate response to the protests, comparisons to the Tea Party movement, uh, you know, a, a political movement that grew up at the last time of 
great national crisis and was, you know, obviously very anti-establishment. It was very anti-government. I'm curious if, you know, Natan, I'll come to you on this. Do you see the possibility for a movement like that to erupt here? Or does this feel more opportunistic, these right-wing groups that have been around at least for 25 years, clearly longer, that are sort of, you know, glomming on to a group of people who are understandably very frustrated with governments that they feel are not actually listening to their economic interests. Thanks, Ian. Look, I'm going to give, a, of course, a two-sided answer, but at first glance, no. This is very different, and there's an irony to these demonstrations. Even people who oppose big government, and that's a very legitimate position to have, after all, do agree that there are some functions the government has to do. And usually they come down to some very basic ones, which is provide security, uh, maybe very basis of the monetary system, perhaps nothing even else. Some people would have more. But this is security. This, this really does lie within the very minimal functions that you would need a government to do. Because if there is a pandemic that requires social distancing, we have to have some way to do so collectively. And so the, the very idea that government itself should not be doing that, this is somehow un-American, that seems to be, uh, just to me, a stretch, something that's much harder to rally people around. The Tea Party was different. The Tea Party, there were legitimate grievances there. I disagreed with it dramatically. But I think there, there were positions that you could hold if you thought government was too big. Here's the other side of it. It is true, however, that there is a question to be had about social distancing. My best judgment which is only as good as the people I listen to, and I try to listen to the experts, is very clear. We have to have it. The experts in epidemiology are very clear on this. There's no doubt in my mind. But there is a question to be had, which is at what point is the economic cost, does it, does it balance out a, a health cost? I think we're probably far from it, but it's not a crazy question to, to be had. And that, I think, is feeling some of this feeling um, and some of this anger. And that, I should say, is not a crazy uh, crazy argument to have. The one thing that I think is inexcusable is the way the president is behaving around this. The president needs at this time, somehow, somewhere, to find a national patriotic position that is above him or above party, that doesn't do all the things that Tammy was describing where the governor of Michigan, whether he likes the governor of Michigan or not, is the person in charge at the moment and has to be able to employ the tools of government for for the people of Michigan. What the president is doing right now is is just reckless beyond belief. Yeah, there's another difference with the Tea Party, which is that at least so far, these protests have been very small. And the Tea Party you know, whatever one says about it, it was a mass movement. It did galvanize a very large number of people, and it turned into an electoral coalition in the sense that the 2010 midterm elections swept a huge number of people who identified with the Tea Party into office, both in the House and in the Senate. And you know, so the, the Tea Party, it was not ever a majority position by any means, but it was a, uh, it was a, in the context of a very divided country, it represented a substantial number of people. The polling data on the point that Natan just mentioned is actually overwhelming in the other direction. I mean, I, the last I saw it was somewhere in the 70% range, which is, you know, that is more people than agree in the United States about a great many things in this divided time, agree uh, with these measures and are more worried about lifting them too early than lifting them too late. And so, you know, you can get four or 5,000 people to descend on Lansing, Michigan, but those may be the only four or 5,000 people who feel that way in the state of Michigan. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, of course, exaggerating a little bit for effect here, but it really is the minority position. And it seems to be a sort of astroturf thing to some extent, which the Tea Party also had elements of. But I do think it's, it's very different in the scale, uh, at least so far, in the number of people who identify with it. Shane, if I can, you know, it, it strikes me, too, that there are a couple of different policy tracks to think about 
you know, one political track that Ben just raised is, okay, what's the broader electoral or political consequence of the sentiment that we're seeing? Is it actually going to change the way people vote for members of Congress or local officials in the future? And we'll have to see. But it it does strike me that since these protests, we have seen some policy outcomes that are exacerbating grievances and could make these protests bigger if they're not addressed. And the biggest one, obviously, was the way in which the small business bailout money from the first COVID response law has been spent. The fact that Harvard University, which has, you know, billions of dollars in endowment, got a bunch of money, big national chains got a bunch of money, and a lot of tiny small businesses were told that the pot was empty and weren't able to access the money. Congress is trying to pass a new CARES Act right now that will replenish that small business fund, and they better find a way to get smaller businesses greater access to this federal bailout money or these protests might grow. You know, we saw Republican and Democratic governors pushing back on the president during some of these protests, Um, especially over the weekend. I thought it was very notable that they were particularly singling out the Food and Drug Administration and other elements of, of the federal bureaucracy for not doing enough to speed up the development of coronavirus tests. And why is this important? Because we know that as economies begin to open up again, we've talked about this in the podcast before, it's going to be necessary to do more aggressive testing to get a baseline of who's infected and then do the kind of contact tracing to try and isolate people. And what I found fascinating about this is that, you know, this was you know probably half a dozen governors from both sides of the aisle essentially saying to President Trump, look, you want to reopen the economy. You're supporting all these people who want to reopen the economy. So do we. There are things that you could be doing, levers that you could throw that would help speed up that process. Why aren't you doing it? And, you know, and Ben, maybe this is it's <clears throat> we don't have a lot of time left in this. But, you know, I keep kind of coming back to the frame that you set up at the very beginning of the administration of you know malevolence versus incompetence and thinking to myself, President Trump, there are things he could be doing right now that would help him get what he wants. And instead of doing them, he's saying it's up to the states to handle this. And so I guess one question I have here is, is this just just a cynical political move to deflect risk and make the states take on the burden? Or does he just genuinely not understand that there are things that he could be doing to help alleviate this process and move more quickly to the goal that he says he wants? Yes, It is a cynical political maneuver, and he doesn't understand that there are things that he could be doing that would help get him what he wants. I think it is both malevolent and incompetent. And you can see both of those things uh, on display in these daily briefings where, first of all, the self-absorption and the you know, it's literally hours and hours of talking about himself and the way, you know, the press or the governors are interacting with him. And, you know, there is nary a word of, you know, sorrow or condolence or sympathy or empathy for people who are genuinely suffering, um, both domestically and worldwide. And, And I think, you know, there is a malevolence to organizing your thought that way in in that context, in this context. At the same time, look, there are certain things that are going on in the administration that are not malevolent. They're just idiotic. And the sort of uh, the testing stuff is kind of the most extraordinary example, right, where where. Look, getting a mass testing system up and running is a genuinely hard problem, but it is not a harder problem in the United States than it is in Germany. Germany's population is is quite large. The United States' population is quite large. They are doing better in the testing department than we are. And this is a, a question of administrative management that just hasn't happened. And so I think it's really both. All right. Well, while we're on the subject of national lockdowns, although we haven't really had a national lockdown, listeners may remember if you go back six or so weeks ago, which feels like 
maybe six months ago to some of us, text messages, and I think in some cases, even emails that were floating around. I got some of them from friends of mine saying, do you think this looks real? And they were all a variation of a theme, which was the president is about to announce a national lockdown, uh, that the Department of Homeland Security was going to get involved in trying to stop riots or looters or keep people in their houses. It turned out that these messages were not real. And of course, we understand now all the reasons that a national government or a national government doesn't go about doing these lockdowns. Um, but a new investigation from the New York Times has found that according to American intelligence officials, China played a role, Chinese operatives, in pushing these messages across various technology platforms. It's not clear that they originated the messages. The origin actually remains quite murky, but that they amplified these in such a way that they got a much wider reach. And I think clearly panicked, at least in my experience, panicked a lot of people, including friends who are very intelligent people, by the way, who really wanted to know if there was something to this. And, you know, Ben, I remember my first thought about these. I don't know if you ever saw any of these texts either was number one, this is almost certainly bullshit. And second, lots of people are going to believe this is actually true. And I was having flashbacks to the 2016 election and all kinds of the propaganda and the memes and the nonsense we saw floating around social media. And I wonder if you had that response to it as well. And if you think that what we're seeing here actually is now the Chinese just adopting a Russian playbook that worked so well just a few years ago. Um, so I actually did not receive any of these messages and didn't know about them until I read the story in the New York Times. And so I'm actually probably not the best test case for this, why the Chinese did not send me any of these messages. I can only complain to Xi Jinping that like, you don't think I'm <laughs> they singled you out to subject to misinformation. And I'm kind of insulted about that actually. But I do think, I do think you're right that it is uh, to some extent, the adoption of a Russian playbook but I also think the motivation for it may be different. The Russians are interested in sowing political chaos in the United States and helping Donald Trump. And I think in, in the Chinese case, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak to their state of mind or why they did this. But I wonder if the reason may be that they are actually interested in sort of blurring the the story about their own disinformation domestically, uh, lies domestically, and the sort of brutal authoritarianism of with which they themselves uh, locked everything down and directed uh, the response when they finally got their act together. And so my, I, I wonder if the, the action may be to divert attention from the fact that they basically did the things that they were sending out messages accusing the administration of doing. Tammy. Yeah, I look, I, I think Ben is right that they're trying to muddy the waters here. But I also think that the Chinese um, propagation of disinformation, at least as described in this really excellent uh, New York Times article, is different from the Russian campaign in another way, which is that the Russian campaign was really just about weakening and confusing their adversary. The Chinese campaign um, seems to have that element in it, clearly, but also specific messages about the ways in which China is a good international actor or a good business partner in dealing with COVID, the way it's helping other countries. So it's dissing the U.S., and also, apparently, according to the New York Times article, dissing European unity and the European cooperative response and pushing a particular message about uh, China being helpful, China sending aid and so on. And so that part of it is more like a traditional public diplomacy campaign, even if it's using these social media and other channels for dissemination. The other thing that I find striking, though, about the Chinese efforts that are described in this in this New York Times piece is that they're global. They're not only directed at the United States. There's a section in there about promoting the idea of disunity among European nations. But there's also a section in there about Chinese television networks cultivating 
in Arabic conspiracy theories that are already rife all over the Arab world about the virus being of American origin or CIA origin. And I have friends in the region who are getting these WhatsApp conspiracy theories on their phones Mm. all the time. And the U.S. is often the butt of conspiracy theories about bad things that are happening in the Middle East. So there's nothing new there. But I found it really interesting that official Chinese state television is pushing those messages. Nathan? Yeah, I think there's something fundamentally strange about this moment, exactly like Tammy said. That there's both things going on. This is, on the one hand, power competition between countries, between great powers in this case. And we see in the United States people trying to blame China, and China does deserve some of the blame, but making China the story. The Chinese tried to use this to their own advantage, when fundamentally we're talking about something that obviously knows no borders, that is clearly a human issue. If ever racists were proven wrong, this is it. There's no race or person in the world that is immune from this. I guess there are people, but there's certainly no race or category that's immune from this. And you would think this is a moment where we would all figure out that it is actually to our advantage to cooperate in some things. And it's just in that one last point on that. There's a story that we're not talking about all that much, I think, uh, anywhere. And that's that the scientific community around the world has actually galvanized remarkably to the detriment sometimes of research in other areas. But everyone is racing on this on COVID and trying to advance things, both in terms of treatment and in terms of prevention and a potential vaccine in the future. And in that, there's actually a lot of cooperation. There you actually do see a realm of people who have this sort of quaint, strange idea that we're in this together and perhaps we might be able to get out of it together. And in terms of politics and diplomacy, it's just such a disheartening moment of um, our president and the Chinese and everyone else falling into all the easiest traps. You know, one way it occurs to me that these messages that, again, experts, it seems like these sources to the Times think that the Chinese amplified it as opposed to wrote the messages themselves um, are different than the Russians is, you know, the Russians were fueling all kinds of just nonsense that seemed on its face just to be kind of silly. But there was a weird kind of ring of truth or plausibility in these text messages. Um, I mentioned at the front, I said that I thought that they were BS, largely because they were saying things like the Homeland Security Department is about to enforce a lockdown. And, you know, having covered that department for the better part of two decades now, I mean, A, legally, they wouldn't have the authority and B, they wouldn't even have the capability to do it. So there were things that were just off in it. But it also occurs to me that it adhered closer to the truth in the sense that we did enter a phase of lockdowns, right? Something that looked like what was being proposed or predicted in these text messages. They just happened at the state level. And you know, I wonder if, it, 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 to some degree, the reason these things maybe were effective is because they seemed more plausible. And it just makes me wonder, I'm totally throwing things at the wall here, if, you know, if there's not a Chinese motivation to do this in the sense that, you know, do they want people to get geared up and prepared for the idea that there might have to be a lockdown? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, we clearly don't know enough about why they were at it. But it's very interesting that if they, in fact, chose to amplify this message, it's one that was not so completely detached from reality uh, the way that I think some of the the Russian messaging was. Ben? Yeah, the- I mean, there's another sense in which it had an element of truth, which is that it, it, you know, sounded a lot like the rhetoric Trump was using. You know, on the one hand, it says they're going to enforce a lockdown. And of course, that ended up being true, as you say, at the state level of a lot of governors. And on the other hand, these sort of the idea that what wasn't true was these sort of expansive claims of federal authority to do that or to use troops. But that's actually like like noises that the president has made. And so there are kind of these strains. It's more than one strain that has rings of truth to it. But it's also, I mean, the reason that those messages are effective is because they are connecting with existing strains in American political discourse. And those don't just come from the president. Of course, you know, we were talking about anti-government right-wing ideologies of the 1990s and the whole idea of the UN and black helicopters coming into American cities, right? So 
these strains have been there for a while. That's how propagandists do their work. They identify strains. They develop messages that will resonate with existing ideas in society. But I think that for the Chinese, there are two additional advantages for them in pushing these messages. One is that pushing a message about potential, you know, uh, severe coercive lockdowns in the United States after Americans have been watching on TV for a month stories about Chinese people being locked in their apartment buildings and not allowed out without a pass, it almost justifies what the Chinese did in their own response. It justifies their coercion when Americans think that the same thing might be done to them. And similarly, you know, when Trump is asked about Chinese disinformation with regard to the virus, and he says, and the New York Times quotes him saying, they do it and we do it. Every country does it. You know, just like he said during the 2016 campaign, you know, everybody kills journalists. We do it. The Russians do it. You know, it it is provoking him to say things like that is also a way of letting China off the hook, creating this false moral equivalency so that they are not held accountable for their own authoritarianism. Well, the work of politics grinds on even in the face of the coronavirus. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his former challenger, Benny Gantz agreed on Monday to establish a unity government. So they are finally breaking a year-long impasse that will keep Netanyahu in office, even as he is facing trial on corruption charges. Um, Natan, I want to start here with you. My first question is, what does Netanyahu get out of this deal, out of this unity government? Thanks, and He gets a lot. Uh, first, uh, he gets legitimacy. This whole year of three elections, three national campaigns, at the end of the day, was about him. And it was about the question in particular of whether someone who was about to be indicted for criminal charges then was indicted for criminal charges, and in fact, should be on trial right now, if it were not for the courts being shut down due to the health crisis. All that was, the question was, could someone like that be prime minister? And the main rallying point for the opposition, for Benny Gantz's amalgam of parties, the amalgam was called Blue and White, the main argument by the end was Netanyahu cannot be prime minister because he's indicted. Not that someone from the Likud couldn't be, not that they wouldn't join in a national unity government with uh, the Likud, which is Netanyahu's party, but not with Netanyahu himself because of the indictment. That is shattered. Netanyahu now has legitimacy from his main challenger, partnering with him, he will now stand trial when the courts reopen, not as a thrice caretaker prime minister, someone who was elected a year ago and three parliaments ago, but instead someone who will now be sworn in as prime minister with the agreement of the opposition. And that's a huge thing. It gives him the thing that Netanyahu likes most, time. He likes that in politics. He likes that in national security. He buys time. He kicks the can down the road and in the meantime does quite a bit. He's very good at it. I don't even mean that literally necessarily. He also gets veto on some very important points. Uh, I mentioned he's going to be a defendant in criminal charges. Well, he will have veto now on all judicial appointments. He will have veto on who will be the next chief of police. That's an open position. And he will be able to if not control that, at least veto that alongside Gantz. Um, he will even have veto over who the national prosecutor, the state prosecutor is, and the attorney general. These are the people who will potentially negotiate a plea bargain if Netanyahu wants to negotiate one. He will have dramatic say over who they might be. That's a huge thing. And then on a major national security issue, which I think we should all care about a lot, the question of whether Israel annexes parts of the West Bank, on that Netanyahu gets not a veto, but a completely free hand. He will have to consult with Gantz, but this policy issue is excluded uh, explicitly in the agreement between the parties. It's excluded from the regular veto process where they both can basically freeze the other out. Uh, instead, this is something that Netanyahu will be able to move on in consultation with the United States. So Washington has a veto uh, starting in July. That is something Netanyahu gets as well. I'll, I'll just say one more thing. Netanyahu, you know, 
then he will end this agreement, it gives one main thing, which is rotation. He'll have to rotate out of the prime minister's office, in theory, in 18 months, and Benny Gantz becomes prime minister. Uh, there's precedent for that. The major precedent is from the 80s. Between 1984 and 88, Israel had a rotation government, a national unity government, where Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir were prime minister each for two years, and the other was foreign minister. But even when Netanyahu is not prime minister under this agreement, even if when he becomes the so-called number two, his position will be solidified. He'll be, uh, he'll be able to remain in that position even if he's convicted of bribery. Uh, only after appeal would he have to resign under the legislative changes they're making. Netanyahu will still be in the scene for a long time. All sorts of supposed experts like myself who wrote that Netanyahu was nearing the end of his political career were just wrong. He's just much better at that than certainly I am, but also than Gantz is. Tammy. Yeah, I, I, you know, (laughs) I'm really struck by the deal that happened here. I mean, I can understand the proximate reasons why Benny Gantz, who entered politics only to get rid of Netanyahu, built an entire electoral coalition around getting rid of Netanyahu, campaigned in three rounds of parliamentary elections on getting rid of Netanyahu. He entered into a government with Netanyahu. I can understand the proximate reasons. There's a national emergency with the COVID crisis. Israelis don't want a fourth election. They're exhausted. They they want a permanent government to oversee the pandemic response, et cetera, et cetera. All these reasons make sense. And yet he has, Benny Gantz has eviscerated what was the most significant political opposition that Netanyahu has faced since he was elected, what was it, 11 years ago, 12 years ago? 2009, um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm struck by is he gave up the game. He, you know, the, what will become of political opposition in this parliamentary democracy? You have, you know, 10 years now, we're going to have another 18 months at least of Netanyahu as prime minister. That's getting into the territory where it gets corrosive of electoral competition to have one person in power for that long. We saw it in Turkey. We've seen it in other countries. And there are a lot of concerns among civil society groups about moves that Netanyahu has made, both in terms of his discourse and in terms of legal and policy changes and the media environment to undermine electoral competition and make it so no opposition can ever beat him again. So now that his main opponent is his partner in government, what happens to political opposition in Israel? Can anyone put that Humpty Dumpty back together again? Or is it going to be years and years of painstaking rebuilding? I have a question for Natan, which is, what's the, the flip side of the argument that you just made about what Netanyahu gets out of this? Given everything that Tammy just said, what does Benny Gantz get out of this? Yeah, well, first, I, I very much agree with what Tammy said, but Benny Gantz to himself, you know, he gets quite a bit in theory. And I think for him, the argument, the proximate argument, as Tammy put it, uh, is more or less as follows. First, he gets this rotation. Benny Gantz joined politics in December 2018. Then Netanyahu was not yet indicted, and the decision to indict was not yet published. And if you asked him back then, that's of course centuries ago, but back in December 2018, if you asked him, would you be defense minister under Netanyahu? My strong suspicion is that he would have said, absolutely. That, that, would, that would have been his goal. And if he had said, you can be defense minister and even rotate into the prime minister's office after 18 months, he would have bought you dinner too. So that in theory, you know, just his prior, I think, was never necessarily against this. This year has been a long one and three campaigns, as Tammy put it, exactly on the point that Netanyahu can't be prime minister under these circumstances. This is a major shift. But what it's, what Gans gets is is first that rotation. That's the main thing. He gets two more points. People from his party will be justice minister and will be communications minister. Justice is very important. Just like Netanyahu has veto over all these appointments, Gans does too. And his argument to everyone was, look, if we had continued as as is, Netanyahu would be caretaker prime minister, which really has all authority almost, for 
another round and then maybe another one. And we, of course, have the coronavirus, so elections would not be held immediately. It would take some time. In the meantime, Netanyahu would simply appoint these people, not have a veto over it, but he would choose the attorney general, the next one in a while. But very soon, the state prosecutor, there's now a caretaker one, and the chief of police, there's also a caretaker one, and he would simply have continued. So what I get here is that someone who cares about rule of law is now the just, the minister in charge of that and making that appointment, albeit with a veto from the other side. In communications, that's really the office that got Netanyahu into trouble in two of these three cases uh, that he's standing trial for, and Gantz, his party will have control over that. So this equal kind of freezing out on policy issues, all of them except annexation, that is something that Gantz can, can boast on. And he is entering this government with only half his party. Half his party deserted him, left him, because they would not do this. They would not join with Netanyahu. And yet he is getting half a cabinet. He's getting veto on all this. And you could argue, if you look in the macro from December 18, Gantz coming out of nowhere, he was not a politician then, has been remarkably successful. Here is going to be the 13th prime minister of Israel. Only 12 men before him have held that office, if he becomes prime minister. And that's a major thing. You know, I, I think Tammy's point about the opposition is, is a very important one. I think, you know, Gantz also had another argument in favor of this, which is I didn't have another alternative. I'm not sure he's right, but I think this is how he felt, which is that after three elections where he almost defeated Netanyahu, it was always almost. Netanyahu could not form a government, but neither could Gantz. This time around, he came close because the opposition to Netanyahu finally decided to unite more or less across very broad divisions. And they tried to form a minority government, but even that failed. There was defections from within his own party, blue and white, and he couldn't do that. So I think he thinks he's cashing in on what was a very successful year and now getting what he can out of it. And he will live to fight another day with Netanyahu perhaps indicted. Maybe Benny Gantz approaches the next election as prime minister. Maybe things change. More likely not. Netanyahu is going to be the veteran prime minister in this scenario and the one with all the political power, the one with most of the votes. Uh, this is going to be a situation where, where Gantz is clearly the junior partner. And Don, this is the last question, and it's somewhat of a pedestrian one, but is this kind of the craziest time in Israeli politics? I mean, you have this, you know, a prime minister facing criminal charges, a unity government, a pandemic. I mean, it just, it seems like such an unbelievably chaotic mix, even in a, a democratic system that is compared to ours, certainly far more used to, you know, hustle and bustle and, you know, people coming and going. I'm just curious your observation on this all happening now. Yes, this is the craziest Israeli politics have seen. And that's saying something. I usually am not one to say that. Uh, and in some ways it's not, you know, people talk about the acrimony and the polarization and that I don't think is actually the worst it's ever been. It was worse in the early 80s and uh, throughout the 80s there was, were different times. A lot has happened. A prime minister was assassinated in Israel. That was certainly worse in many, many different ways. Netanyahu was around then. He was head of opposition. But this, having three elections in one year, that's completely unprecedented. That's never happened. Two has never happened. Having someone hold on to the office, despite being indicted for corruption, for bribery, no less, that is just uh, unprecedented, of course. Uh, having, of course, the coronavirus uh, health situation going on at the same time, this is this is new territory. Tammy pointed out, you know, why, why would guys do this given everything else? We could have simply, you could have imagined Gantz saying, okay, this is a moment where the country simply cannot have a fourth elections. We need to pass a budget. We need to have a functioning government. Okay, I'll support Netanyahu from the outside in the short term because this is a crisis. I think, by the way, his own party, the part that left him, might have agreed to that. They said, listen, the country can't deal with a fourth election. We are patriotic citizens. We will support Netanyahu, although we disagree with him completely, to form a short-term government and we'll deal with politics later. Or they could have joined a national unity government asking for nothing. I will simply stabilize the situation, give me a, you know, one minor portfolio, and we will stabilize the situation and return to this. Instead, we have this complete mess. Uh, we will not have a fourth election in the short term if this deal actually goes through and this, the court doesn't intervene. But the mess will continue. This national unity government will be a very, very strange chimera, and the mess is not over. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, why don't you go first? So I had one of the great coups of my career yesterday. I am now 
a in my capacity as a photographer i now have a photo credit in vogue magazine and you know i never thought i was going into photography for a living but uh brookings has agreed to add this to my brookings bio and you never thought he was fashionable enough to have a photo credit in Vogue magazine. That's right. And yes, um that's right. And that's all I have to say on the subject. I'm not gonna say what the subject of the photograph is, but <laughs> like the big deal for the week for me, my object lesson is my photo in Vogue magazine. Not a photo of you, to be clear. All right. I guess people will have to just go see it for themselves, huh? Uh oh, yeah. Tammy. Go, go check it out for sure. <laughs> Sammy, what's your object? Um, so my object is actually um, circling back to the first topic we talked about today. My object is the remarks that the mayor of Oklahoma City, David Holt, gave at the memorial event this week for the anniversary of the bombing. It is the the text was published in full in the Oklahoman. And it is a remarkable reflection on the lessons that the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building have for Americans today about the special burden that Oklahomans have in spreading that message to the rest of the country. It is a sober reflection on dehumanization in politics and the danger that it brings. And so I really commend it to everyone and, uh, and we'll put the uh, link up on the show page for all of you. Great. Uh, Natan, what do you have this week? Well, I was going to bring uh, a brilliant piece of literature, but I didn't want to shame everyone else. So instead, I have an empty <laughs> carton of uh, milk. It's one gallon. And according to my quick calculation, if I had filled it in oil yesterday or the day before, I could have earned about 90 cents simply by taking that oil off of other people's hands. Fortunately, now I think oil is back in positive territory, so it's already a loss. Uh, a loss. Nonetheless, I'll recycle it instead. <laughs> well, okay. To be technically accurate, Natan, what went negative were the May futures for West Texas oil. So you would have had to hold that empty milk carton, let it get a little stinky right. until May, and then take delivery in May of a gallon of West Texas oil. Good point. Good point. We have some crude oil here in the house, actually. Oh, I don't doubt um, that. No, we do, because you went to Qatar. And they gave you a small vial as like a, it was Kuwaiti crude. Yeah. It's a, it's a small vial of Kuwaiti crude oil. Um, and, uh, it's, it's around here somewhere. (laughs) I'll put it in your gallon for you. But they didn't pay you to take it. I think you got ripped off. Oh, well, 90 cents. It's not that much. Yeah. It's a college fund. (laughs) Yeah. That's just not bad. Uh, my object this week is another film recommendation. This is a this is an older film, and it was new to me. This is from 1989. It's actually a made-for-TV movie called The Final Days. Uh, and if that title sounds familiar to you, this is the dramatization of the. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein sequel to All the President's Men. And it's about Nixon's final days in office. Um, In addition to being a very good movie, actually, surprisingly good, I thought, for a TV movie, I am recommending this because of the actor who portrays Nixon. So the actor is named Lane Smith. And he's a character actor. Probably the name is not familiar. But if anybody saw My Cousin Vinny, you remember that movie? He plays the prosecutor. So if you have... You see his yeah. face now, right? He's like, like any, like so many character actors, you're like, oh yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> this is hands down the best portrayal of Richard Nixon I have ever seen on film. And we discovered it, Joe and I, because uh, other people had actually remarked on this of how good and overlooked it is. And I kind of love it because in so many movies, you see Nixon played with the kind of, you know, the jowly kind of throaty kind of, you know, weird tremor almost that's going on in his face. And there's none of that with with Lane Smith's characterization of him. And he just seems to get straight to all of the pathos and the contradictions of Nixon. And it's just really a beautiful performance on top of being a good 
good movie and quite innovative uh, in the way they tell the story. So, uh, yeah, I don't know why this uh, this movie didn't make more of a star of Wayne Smith, <laughs> but it should be like in the pantheon of great Nixon films. Have you guys seen it? No. Right. I mean, no one's heard of this film. No, I've never seen it. I didn't it's even got- know it existed, I think. Yeah, it's got it's got quite a cast. It's like just see David Ogden Steers is in it. There's some other you know kind of well known TV actors, but uh, no, it, it's fun. David Ogden Steers actually plays Alexander Haig, which is kind of cool. And the guy who plays Kissinger, not bad. I'm now seeing as the late Lane Smith actually. Uh, it is the late Lane Smith, sadly. Yes, uh, oh. he died about uh, fifty, about ten years ago. No, five years ago, I guess. No, fifteen. Jeez. But uh, yeah, in fact, there's a scene with with him and Kissinger, and I, I presume this is real because I think it's in Kissinger's memoirs. But it's the night before that Nixon actually is leaving office, and he grabs Kissinger and makes him kneel down with him and pray in the <laughs> residence, and just completely breaks down. And it's it's kind of heartbreaking, actually. That's I mean, in the book. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I figured no, I have not what, read that really book, happened. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's kind of wrenching. I mean, it makes you, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the rare performance that can actually make you sympathize with Richard Nixon in that particular moment. Uh, but uh, check it out while you're at home. Uh, I think you can get it on Netflix, but it's on some of the streaming services. Um, but uh, for now we will leave you. That brings us to the end of the podcast. You guys, we did it again. This is like the fifth, is this the fifth remote episode? Maybe the fourth one. Yes, of course. I feel like we should celebrate at five. Maybe we'll wait to celebrate at 10. Okay, maybe we won't get to 10. Maybe we'll wait to celebrate when we can get back to the Jungle Studio. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so cute. You presume we'll ever come back. No, I'm kidding. That's getting very dark. <laughs> Brought the tone down there a little bit, didn't I? I'm going to come up with some movie recommendations for next week. Please do. Please do. Get me out of here. Uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find Ben's photo from Vogue at voguemagazine.com. I'm sure, you can probably find it there, too. Did you get paid for that photo? No. Hmm. No, I... I You're giving you know, it away. I do time. photography, Shane, as a labor of love... I don't deign to be paid. Oh, stop. Man. Soon then we'll have a master class. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. It really helps others find the show, and we appreciate it very much. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his stirring patriotic rendition of the George Michael hit Freedom 90. Oh, I love that song. It's a great song, right? Freedom. It's a great song. Liberate. It's a great song. It is a really great song. I don't think the president would maybe do as credible a job as George Michael or <laughs> Sophia. <laughs> but it's of the moment. Anyway, go check that out too. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Natan Sox, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 